Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to another podcast episode of Naturally Recovering Autism. I am your host, Karen Thomas, and this podcast is for mostly for parents of children on the autism spectrum or anybody who is able to help them, caregivers, uh, teachers, a lot of family members involved. But uh, after recovering my own son from his symptoms of autism, after being told that he couldn't be recovered, once I realized that it could happen and that there were natural resources that were safe and effective to do so, I wrote my book, Naturally Recovering Autism. I have my website that's loaded with free resources for you at naturallyrecoveringautism.com. And you can also learn about my step-by-step online program that I have developed specifically to walk parents through that big mess of confusion around all of this um, and to simplify it for you. And here I offer a lot of great resources as well. This podcast, often I'm able to interview experts in various fields of things that are really important for children on the autism spectrum. And today I have a very special guest with us, Dr. Richard Deeth, and he specializes in the methylation and B12 areas and epigenetics. But I'm going to read you his bio, and and then we're going to go into some of this because I know that what I just said might be completely foreign to you. <laughs> and don't worry, we're going to we're going to tone it down and speak in layman's terms. You're going to be able to understand everything, and that's the point: is to help you understand some of the things that are going on for your children and why. And, and even better, what you can do about them. So let me give you a little background on Dr. Deeth real quick. Um, he is a professor of pharmacology in the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences at Nova Southeastern University and Professor Emeritus at Northeastern University. He received his bachelor's degree in pharmacy from State University of New York at Buffalo and his doctoral degree in pharmacology from the University of Miami. His research interests are focused on the role of oxidative stress and impaired methylation reactions in neurodevelopmental, neuropsychiatric, and neurodegenerative disorders, including the important role of epigenetic regulation. His laboratory was first to identify the unique ability of the D4 dopamine receptor to carry out phospholipid methylation and show that numerous environmentally derived toxins, including heavy metals, potentially impair this process as well as other methylation reactions. Dr. Deeth has published more than 100 peer-reviewed studies and research articles and book chapters, and he authored the monograph, Molecular Origins of Human Attention, The Dopamine Folate Connection. In recent years, his work has focused on autism, helping to understand the factors contributing to the current autism epidemic. The ongoing work includes investigations of the status of the antioxidant glutathione and vitamin B12, including the influence of morphine and gluten casein-derived opiate peptides on glutathione and methylation status. Now, I know a lot of that might sound kind of foreign to you as a listener, but it is really, really important information for us, and we're going to tell you exactly what all of that means. So welcome, Dr. Deeth, and thank you for being here today. Well, Karen, that's a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Appreciate oh, it's my it. pleasure. 
we have, uh, of course, many questions came up even in just your, your biography there and your background. And a lot of listeners are not familiar with any of that. So I would really any, like any to, <laughs> um, we'll start out with, um, you know, maybe uh, why children, especially the autism epidemic has risen so, so quickly. And there's a lot of toxins. So why is the brain so susceptible to those toxins and, um, and the factors of you know, epigenetics and things that go into that. So why don't we start there? You know, starting, starting with the brain and what makes it especially vulnerable to toxins, that's a great place to start. And it's really at the heart of autism and, and other things. Um, but uh, we and others have learned over the past, I'll say 10, 15 years, uh, is that the development of the brain is takes place in an environment where antioxidants are very scarce, surprisingly, because the brain uses 10 times as much oxygen as any other organ in the body. So why would nature create a, a system or a situation where there's barely enough antioxidant available in the brain? Well, uh, as we've uh, appreciated that that's the case, we uh, can understand that what the brain uses that risk of having too little antioxidant, that is a condition of oxidative stress, uh, what it uses that risk for is to guide the development of the brain uh, and to guide the uh, turning on, turning off of genes in the brain during development. And, and uh, so it turns out to be a risk that has some advantages to it. Uh, but the uh, problem is that environmental toxins across the board, uh, not only heavy metals like lead and mercury, but um, glyphosate and uh, all sorts of pesticides, all those things, they have in common that they lower your antioxidant levels. Oh. Well, if they do that and they all do it together, um, then in fact, uh, the most vulnerable place that's gonna show the effects of that is going to be the brain. And secondly, the most vulnerable time to show those effects is gonna be during early brain development. And uh, so what we see and what we've learned about autism is that the, the big increase, it's not genetic, it's not like somehow there's new genes that are becoming a problem. Uh, the problem is that the mechanism underlying brain development depends upon having enough antioxidant. And so uh, toxins in the environment uh, can cause neurodevelopmental disorders. Yeah, and it's, it's, there are so many things that, that uh, the mother is exposed to during pregnancy or had been even exposed to prior to pregnancy, heavy metal toxins, mercury amalgam fillings, just the environment that we live in, foods, pesticides. So all of those are, are usually in the, in the mother and that the accumulation is there. So then, then there's this fetus trying to grow and there are these toxins that are already invading it in utero before it's even born. Yeah, um, certainly the case has a scary scenario, uh, but we, we have to appreciate it, but not be too frightened of it. We have to live our lives and have our children, our healthy children. Um, and so, but understanding it is important, both scientifically 
and in everyday life as well. One of the things that uh, comes up and uh, is new, relatively new information has to do with the possibility that exposures, even of previous generations, mm -hmm. can carry over and have effects on the next generation. So this transgenerational effects of uh, toxic exposures um, is uh, now appreciated. They've studied it in, in animals for like five or six generations or more. And uh, this, uh, this adds a new level of uh, sort of uh, appreciation uh, because it's the grandmother's uh, uh, habits or exposures can actually still be felt by not only uh, her daughter, but her daughter's daughter. And so uh, and this all has to do with this new field of epigenetics. Mm -hmm. And I know we're going to talk about that. It's a, a new word for a, a lot of people. Epi, epi usually means outside, around, on the outside of. In this case, epigenetics means uh, we're not talking about the genes sequence, the usual features of a gene. We're not talking about the uh, nucleotides that make up a gene, but we're talking about things that happen to the DNA and happen to the genes. In particular, uh, adding um, the uh, carbon atoms known as methyl groups. Uh, and uh, if you can picture a, a long strand of DNA, oh, it's a very long strand that DNA, but all along the strand, there is a sprinkling of these added methyl groups or carbon atoms, and they can be put on and taken off, put on and taken off, and all that happens dynamically during, especially during early development. Um, and uh, this regulates the genes. It, it determines which ones are gonna be on, which ones are gonna be off. So it's epigenetics that's the switch that turns genes on and off, and it's the methylation of the DNA that does the switching. It's like that light switch <laughs> that you might think about to turn the light on, but in this case, it's turning the genes on. And some people hear the term, uh, your child's a poor methyl donor. And, uh, or uh, we'll talk about also kind of leads into methyl B12, versus other forms of B12, and why methyl B12 is so much more important, but also I'd really like you to elaborate on why so many children, especially with autism, have initially a hard time, even though they need the, the methyl B12, it, because it's methyl, it's a methylated product, they, they have trouble, um, uh, their bodies have trouble utilizing it and they can actually oh, be tolerating hyper it. hyperactive and then also what what they can do in that situation so if you mm -hmm. can kind of run through that scenario for us um, I can although I do want to make sure that you and your listeners understand that I'm not a clinician I'm a, I'm, a, I'm the kind of doctor that does bench research and understands the mechanisms and we do it on human tissues and stuff like that mm -hmm. but I, I don't want to uh, I don't want to give medical advice, and I'm, I'm, I'm to make sure that uh, don't cross that line here. But we can certainly uh, start off. Uh, you were saying, though, some people are, are better methylators than others, um, and this uh, is the case that uh, people, uh, humans, have evolved 
to be either better or poorer methylators. Um, and that's represented as, uh, as variations in genes. The most famous one in this area is probably the MTHFR mm -hmm. gene, gene that regulates how much folate you have in, your, in the active form called methylfolate. So some people have a lot of that. And if they do, it supports their methylation activity and uh, they're gonna be stronger methylators. Other people don't. Um, and it turns out that in the autistic population, if you do those studies, and I'm thinking here of uh, Dr. Jill James and Richard Fry and others, that the percentage of people with autism or kids with autism uh, are quite high in the MTHFR variants that make them poor or marginal methylators. Yes. And the methyl group that is carried by methylfolate has to pass right through B12. Uh, the methylfolate is a cofactor for the methyl B12 enzyme. The, the name of the enzyme is methionine synthase. It's got a technical name. But what that uh, enzyme does, it gets a methyl group from methylfolate and puts it into the form of methionine that can be used to donate to that DNA that I mentioned earlier. So both folate and methylfolate and B12, in particular methyl B12, they are the main players in providing for methylation and the methylation of the DNA that controls gene expression. Let's take a brief step back. Some of our listeners don't even aren't familiar with what methylation is. So if okay. you kind of in layman's terms, just you know, let them know what that is. Okay. Well, the, a, a carbon atom is a, a single atom. Okay, and that carbon atom can be transferred from one molecule to another. So if you have a, a molecule that's just waiting for a carbon atom to be added, you have a, 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 a methyl donor that can come along and add a carbon atom, or it's called a methyl group, to that receiver molecule, which is now methylated. So methylation is the name for the process of transferring carbon atom, a single carbon atom, onto another molecule. I've been talking here about DNA because we're talking about development, but there's thousands of such methylation reactions throughout metabolism. Um, and uh, the methyl B12 and the methylfolate that I just mentioned, they control all of those not just the methylation of DNA, but the methylation of a thousand other things. And so they really orchestrate metabolism and they coordinate metabolism. And detoxification, right? And detoxification is tied to that because mm -hmm. methylation is one kind of detoxification mm -hmm. of molecules like drug molecules that you might take in or something like that. But the critical thing that our work has has been focused on is that if your antioxidant levels are below normal, it inhibits methylation. Oh, so all those toxins that I referenced before I talked about, they all lower your antioxidant. That means they all inhibit methylation. And so it's that relationship between 
antioxidant status and methylation status that really is at the heart of autism. Methylation is important for brain development. Toxins interrupt that process. So we'll get into things like the master antioxidant uh, glutathione, which uh, I know that you've done some work with. And um, first, let's start with B12, because uh, even in, in my program, I have a, so a lot of parents will say, my child has a really hard time taking methyl B12. They get really right. hyperactive. So what can I do? So, Hydroxy B12 to begin to help the body process and get more, get stronger. Mm -hmm. And then moving? Well, first of all, I'm going to acknowledge uh, Dr. Uh, James Newbrander here for his pioneering work, his, his discovery, we'll call it, that uh, in many uh, kids uh, that methyl B12 at higher than physiologic doses can have a beneficial effect in improving language, outlook, almost, not all, but most of the features of autism. Um, so when uh, methyl B12 is given, and of course it can be given in different ways. Uh, Dr. Newbrander uh, championed and still does the uh, injection of methyl B12, which is, guarantees that it's, it's in the body and it's fully available and uh, is probably the most effective way to uh, elicit the clinical response to methyl B12. But when methyl B12 levels go up, then in fact it activates uh, a lot of processes in the brain that can lead to excitation, can lead to um, for problems with overactivity. And uh, this is sort of not surprising. It's like waking up a system that wasn't working well before. And you have to be careful about that. Again, not being a clinician, I can't give specific recommendations, but I can uh, appreciate that in general, you could consider gradual dosing that is gradually increasing even the methyl B12 from a, a lower starting dose or a low starting dose to a higher one. And you also mentioned hydroxy B12. Now, hydroxy is a different form of B12. There's about five or six well-recognized forms of B12. And uh, the hydroxy has no role in the body, but it can be made into the active methyl B12 and the other form that is active in the body called adenosyl B12 or adenosyl cobalamin. Those are the two active forms. But the conversion of the hydroxy to these active forms requires that you have enough glutathione. It's a glutathione-dependent conversion. So because glutathione levels are low in many kids with autism, that conversion isn't a sure thing. And so hydroxy can be good because it isn't ready to go to work. It's a, it's a less active form. Um, but uh, you have to make sure that uh, I would, there's enough of the uh, formation of the methyl B12 from the hydroxy to have the full effect. Um, but others, there is experience. Again, I've, I've heard a number of people, and Dr. Amy Asco comes to mind here as somebody who's advocated uh, the hydroxy. And it's my understanding that some mixture of the two 
uh, might uh, be uh, advantageous as well. Again, this is only what I've heard from others, not being a clinician myself. And I found because the gut is so compromised in children with autism that uh, it's best to avoid it if possible. Like you're saying there's injections, but I've also found uh, a form that is in a phospholipid liposomal form um, that actually you can you can squirt into the mouth. It absorbs into the capillaries in the mouth, and uh, with the phospholipids, uh, it it's a way of helping to distribute it into the bloodstream a little bit more gently. It sounds like it 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 would be best if a parent just did a really low dose of that, and if that was even causing hyperactivity, to possibly add a little bit of hydroxy B12 at the same time and titrate up very slowly, could that be a, a good way to go? Because then you're getting the B, methyl B12 in initially rather than just going straight to hydroxy? Oh, again, I, I really don't want to be in the position of getting medical advice that I shouldn't. <laughs> I mean, that's just who I am, and then we should understand that it's not appropriate because I don't have that experience directly. However, the, the idea of of uh, encouraging oral absorption from the oral cavity, or, or uh, certainly nasal has been uh, used in the past as well, uh, to, to bypass the absorption mechanisms which might not be working well in the gut. Uh, it's, uh, B12 is only absorbed in a, the last segment of the small intestine, the distal ileum as it's known. And in there, there's a couple of important transport proteins that have to be working correctly to take in B12. And even when they do take it in, it's going to be in relatively smaller amounts, that is, physiologic amounts, not treatment-oriented mm -hmm. amounts. So bypassing that and getting it into the general circulation in larger than those minimal amounts is, uh, is a more therapeutic approach that people have taken. Right. Have you noticed that adding folate, or have you seen that adding folate along with it is helpful um, or can be? Have I seen it? In other words, have I, um, have have I seen papers written read? about this? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't mean to be, uh, to be uh, sort of off-center off here a little bit. But, uh, I, again, I, I know what I know, and, um, and, and there's things that uh, had to do with clinical experience, experimenting with different forms and things like that, 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 that is not uh, really my domain and not what I do. I should say, this is important, uh, what we have done in my lab, um, and we're the, we're the first ones to, to show this, and really the only one so far, uh, is that the, we've measured the brain levels of B12 in uh, human brain, um, both uh, in normal individuals across the lifespan, and then we did a comparative measurement in either younger subjects with autism or middle-aged subjects with schizophrenia. And um, just uh, what we found that was all very interesting, in my opinion, is that the level of methyl B12 in the brain uh, goes down when you get older. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, at my age, I'm an, in the older category, my level of B12 in healthy, normal people when they're older is about tenfold less than it was when I was younger. 
oh, that's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're over 50, for example, that goes down rather steeply. Uh, interestingly, the blood level of B12 and methyl B12 does not go down like that. It might be 10% or something like that, but it's not tenfold lower. So it may not be detected in a blood test. It's exactly correct. And so the brain is a separate B12 compartment. It's got its own way of doing things. So in any case, we found that out for normal people across the lifespan, if you will. And then we looked at autistic kids who were about on average eight or nine years old and their level in the brain compared to, let's say, normal kids that didn't have autism at the same age was about one-third, one-quarter of what it should have been. They had a deficit in their brain B12, and that deficit at age eight or nine made them about the same as a 55-year-old normal person would be. In other words, it was a premature decrease mm-hmm. in autism of something that's normal but doesn't happen until you're older. So and supplementation is key. And what what symptoms would a parent or an older person notice from those level, low levels of B12? Well, I'd say brain fog is a good, uh, a good <laughs> phrase to catch that uh, because um, uh, B12 supports an active brain. It supports capacity for attention. Uh, This um, is really what got us started in this whole field was recognizing that one of the dopamine receptors, the D4 receptor or the neurotransmitter called dopamine, that that needs methylation to work. Oh, and it needs methyl B12 to work. And, And that particular dopamine receptor, the D4, that's the biggest risk factor for ADHD. Right. And kids, why they can't focus in a classroom. The the focus factor is the dopamine factor. And I know that you kind of specialize in that dopamine factor as well. So I think it'd be great for parents to to have you go into that a little bit because a lot of the dopamine receptors are created in the gut and the gut in a lot of children with autism is usually not working properly. So those dopamine receptors cannot build function, create enough dopamine for the brain also. So that's an added aspect, is that, or do they just go hand in hand? Well, there are some dopamine receptors in the gut, and there's some some drugs that are used uh, for gut diseases that are targeting that. But separately, in the brain, uh, behind the blood-brain barrier there, uh, that's that's where the dopamine is produced in the brain, and the receptors on the nerve surface get to be stimulated by the dopamine. Um, and uh, when the, the dopamine stimulates the receptor molecules uh, that are grabbing the dopamine there, the stimulation um, of this one receptor and only this one dopamine receptor, the D4, it leads to the changes in the firing rate of the neurons and of the neural networks. (laughs) Got to get a little scientific Mm -hmm. here, but the neurons, they form networks because they touch each other, they synapse with each other. Give messages. um, That's right. And when the dopamine activates this particular D4 receptor, it causes an increase in the synchronized activity, the synchronized firing of these networks at a particular frequency. So uh, 
frequency. Oh, frequency is when you tune your radio to a certain frequency. Mm -hmm. You know, you got at the one end you got 89, and the other end you got 104, 105, or something like that. What dopamine does is it shifts the frequency to a higher frequency uh, in these networks, and it increases the synchronized activity. And when something is uh, activated that way, that information is the attended information. That's why you attend to something, is because the information that the dopamine is working on in the brain has got a stronger synchronization and a faster firing rate. So that's what, that's what we discovered, if you will, uh, and that leads to like a mechanism of attention. And what you can appreciate for that mechanism is that if your methylation is not working right, then that synchronization is not working right either. And so you're going to have impaired attention. Um, and you can help to treat that a couple of different ways. You can use Ritalin, amphetamines, and things like that to give you more dopamine. But what's really more fundamental is to help the response of, to the dopamine. That's where the methylation support, methyl B12, comes in. I've also found the amino acid L-tyrosine to be very helpful mm -hmm. in building uh, dopamine naturally. And I find, too, and I've seen this in, in research, that uh, children with poor methylation tend to be more sensitive to um, histamines, in, especially in foods and things like that, and in uh, and and the aminos. So, as L-tyrosine is an amino acid, um, it seems to I found it to be very helpful with building up the dopamine and the, the the ability to focus. I mean, you have to know where you're at with with dopamine to to be doing that. But um, but that I found it personally and with my own son to be very very helpful. Yeah, well, uh, certainly that's the uh, start, starting material for making dopamine. So uh, the fact that the tyrosine uh, might help that kind of dopamine mechanism makes perfect sense. And you had also mentioned a couple of things about um, gluten-free, casein-free diets. And uh, I'm very aware, yeah, the, um, the gluteomorphin and caseomorphins, the opiates that are created from uh, gluten, which most people listening uh, likely know, but gluten is the protein in wheat products, and casein is the protein in dairy products, specifically cows, but dairy products. And, um, and those will create actual opiates in the system. And so, uh, Dr. Deeth, if you could kind of elaborate on that, because I know you studied it, and, um, and then also um, how the body is not able to work with those, especially in a child with autism versus somebody else, and also getting, getting able, being able to get rid of the excess opiates in the system, because ch children with autism have that problem. So parents find that their kids are literally addicted to bread and pasta and cereal and, and, and those, those types of foods because when they start, those opiates start going down, it's like a drug addict needs a fix. You're right. Uh, that, uh, I have to say myself, when I first heard people say those kinds of things, um, I was at Dan meetings to feed autism now and things like that. And I can uh, vividly remember, uh, for example, Dr. Carl Reichelt, who uh, passed away um, uh, not too long ago, talking about these casomorphins, these uh, food-derived peptides that are released in, in the GI tract as a part of digestion. 
And uh, he was saying, oh, they're opiates. Uh, they, they could produce addiction. And I could also see pictures of mothers, their kids are pounding on the refrigerator mm -hmm. to uh, get, their, get their milk, and uh, they were essentially addicted and so forth. So I took those in for a number of uh, years, and then the gluten-free casein-free diet. And then uh, we started in our lab when I was at Northeastern to uh, pursue a hypothesis. And what we decided to test is do those opiate peptides from gluten and from casein, from milk and wheat, do those peptides have any influence on the antioxidant problem, which seems to be characteristic of autism. <clears throat> In particular, glutathione, which is the central main antioxidant. And what you need to have enough glutathione is you have to have enough of the sulfur amino acid cysteine. Well, it turns out that the whey portion of milk, the, the uh, liquid part, when you separate it into curds and whey, the whey portion is very rich in the cysteine that you need to make antioxidants. Well, that should make uh, milk good for us, uh, good for kids, and nature decided that. Nature certainly makes milk the first food. So we undertook some studies with those opiate peptides, and what we found is that when those peptides are released, they block the absorption of that cysteine, that raw material you need to make glutathione. And the, we compared the peptide from wheat, the peptide from cow milk, and also the peptide from human milk. Well, because we appreciate that uh, there are some species differences here. And uh, in the case of milk, uh, the story becomes even, I think, more interesting because of breastfeeding on the one hand, healthy, good thing for kids. Cow milk, it's good, but breast milk is better. Um, it turns out that when breast milk is digested from humans, you don't get very much of that peptide released. You get more released from cow milk, especially if the cow milk is of what's called the A1 type. Cows come in two genetic types when it comes to their casein. One is called the A1 cow milk, or A1 casein molecule, A1 beta casein to be specific. But the other one is the A2 beta casein. And as it turns out, the beta one casein gives a lot of that opiate peptide when it's digested. But the A2 has a slightly different amino acid sequence and that slight difference means you get little or no uh, uh, opiate peptide from the A2 type of casein. So um, that opens up a lot of questions. Like, what kind of milk am I drinking? How am I supposed to know, right? And as it turns out here, uh, you can find either at the grocery store or at farms, you can find milk that's only got the A2. And if you do find that A2 milk, then it doesn't block the absorption of cysteine from the whey. You get the full benefit of the whey protein. 
and uh, we, we showed that. We showed that uh, first in animal studies, and then uh, we've actually showed it in some human trials uh, where uh, we could show that the glutathione level in the blood after you drink the A2 milk, which is A2 casein only, that your glutathione level was almost twice as high as it was when you had a mixture of both the A2 and the A1 milk, right, which is normal. You get normal milk, it's, unless you specify otherwise, it's gonna be mixed. So is it somewhat safe to say a child with autism could actually drink the A2 milk and probably be okay if their parent knew for sure that it was A2 milk? Or is it still best to avoid it? I, I would say, and we need to have the clinical trial results to say that as a fact. But mm -hmm. what we know now outside of autistic kids, what we know in other humans mm -hmm. um, that the A2 gives higher glutathione levels, which is exactly what the problem is in autism, is low glutathione levels and low cysteine levels. So from a prediction standpoint, uh, that should be um, okay. It should be good, as a matter of fact. Another thing that's interesting has to do with people who say that they're lactose intolerant. Okay, that's a lot of people say mm -hmm. that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as it turns out, and again, you can find recent studies about this as well, that uh, most people, if they're lactose intolerant, they can actually tolerate the A2 milk. Mm. Um, we did a, well, there's some collaborators in China. They did a study with 600 subjects, uh, a relatively large number, who had uh, histories of lactose intolerance. And they gave them either the A1 or the A2 milk, and they found uh, that uh, the A2 was tolerated better, but they could actually even show that the, the lactase gene, the one that helps you digest the lactose, was working better uh, with, with the A2 milk. So what uh, it opens up a lot of uh, sort of appreciation for uh, what it takes to digest milk mm -hmm. and to, to gain the benefit of milk that has made it so special from the standpoint of evolution. Um, and uh, so in any case, uh, the, uh, the milk story about these opiates uh, is uh, quite an interesting one. There's a book called Devil in the Milk Hmm. Uh, that uh, written by uh, Keith Woodford. That's um, a, a worthwhile read, I would say, and it's accessible. I think it's written so uh, people in general can uh, can get it. Um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, interesting information in there about this uh, story with the A1 and A2 milk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, think about the evolution behind that of a cow and and how much breeding goes on and and things well, that. You and it's a 2,000 pound animal. I mean, we're not 2,000 or plus pound animals to, to be drinking that. It, like, mm -hmm. we tend to do better uh, with goat's milk or sheep's milk as human yeah, beings. Goat's milk is typically A2. I, mm -hmm. I'm not aware of what sheep is, I shouldn't, so I can't say. But what's interesting uh, to delve into this a little bit, back in the 30s and 40s, the 1930, 1940, the, the standard milk cows were either Guernsey or Jersey cows. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, those are typically A2 
two type of cows. But the, the volume of milk that's produced by those cows is less than the Holstein or Frisian cows that are now the main source of our milk supply. So the milk supply in the United States has shifted from a, an A1, excuse me, what used to be an A2 dominant supply to now a more A1 supply. And uh, it, it may imply that that opiate peptide component of milk is, uh, is now more prevalent or more uh, active uh, than it uh, used to be. And so, uh, uh, so that's kind of uh, in the background because we don't really know how important that shift is, but uh, it's, it's real. Another very prevalent factor today uh, that we have to be careful of, and it's especially in wheat crops and on the grains that cows are fed, is glyphosate, which is a chemical found in the, the known weed killer of Roundup. Well, now it's being sprayed on our food crops and on the crops that the cows are eating. So we are then getting glyphosate in our system. Even the milk from that cow is going to contain the glyphosate. So that has been found to be a methylation disruptor as well, glyphosate. So that yeah. exposure can be part of the issue as well. Yes, I've seen some studies um, uh, that uh, they looked at cows and uh, the cow milk from cows that were grazing in either glyphosate or non-glyphosate fields. Um, and uh, the uh, exposure to glyphosate caused a, a big decrease in their uh, levels of cobalt or cobalamins and B12. Now, what's interesting to me is if you see why, what is it about glyphosate that kills weeds? I mean, weeds are plants. And if you look at the, at the literature and the pathways that are supposed to be specific for plants here that are uh, inhibited and blocked by glyphosate, say, oh, that's not gonna affect humans, it only affects plants. But the way the glyphosate inhibits the pathway is because it forms a cage-like structure that captures the cobalt and the manganese that's needed by the, those pathways in plants. So if it captures those same essential minerals for us, then uh, that's a problem. So even though plants, plants are killed by it, uh, it's still a problem for humans. And I've in interviewed Dr. Stephanie Seneff. She is an MIT professor who is now really studying glyphosate. And I will link uh, on the page where this podcast is released, released at naturallyrecoveringautism.com. I'll link to that podcast as well because it goes into a lot more of those specifics, which are very important to know about. We talk about the, the manganese factor and, of course, the, the reduction in the human body from glyphosate when you are, are eating um, eating or drinking from a product that contains glyphosate or even inhaling it in your neighborhood. If, you're, if your neighbors are spraying Roundup in, in their yard, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. Then inhaling it can also affect the, the tight junctions of the body and, the, um, and the, the membranes. So we can actually end up with leaky gut issues from it as well because it disrupts the membranes. And then we end up with undigested food particles going into 
our bloodstream, which then causes immune reactions and toxic load. And it's a whole barrel of things that that can really lead to. Mm -hmm. uh, so really important yeah. for people to be aware of. Yeah, because of the, the, the volume of that that's used and of course the increasing amounts that are used when glyphosate resistant crops are planted, it's an invitation to overuse glyphosate. And we're sort of in a, a vicious cycle mm -hmm. of, of increasing use uh, and uh, this is uh, not good. There's an organization, and I will link to them as well. Um, Zen Honeycutt is a mom who found her son was very, uh, created symptoms of autism and, and found out it was from, um, originally came back to glyphosate and genetically modified foods. So she's created an organization called Moms Across America. And so if people are interested in learning more about how you can help to reduce the factor of glyphosate in our environment and and fighting to keep it out of your community and out of our foods, um, that's a really good resource for parents to be aware of. So Dr. Deeth, what I'd like to do too is ask you, I noticed that you, you have mentioned about vaccinations and autism and that connection. And so I'm assuming you're tying it into the methylation factor, but what do you have to share about that? Well, uh, it's obviously controversial, still mm -hmm. controversial, I have to say. Uh, but I have, for example, testified in uh, a number of cases, including the national vaccine uh, courts and things like that, all of which have been uh, turned down uh, as uh, cases uh, regarding autism. Um, but despite those events, dis despite the uh, suppression, I'd have to say, of uh, investigations into the connection between autism and vaccination, there is a connection that needs to be at least further investigated, uh, if not given a weight on what's already known about it. So, I mean, the two general things to me, and there's a lot of things in vaccines that you can focus on as potential links or potential things, um, the, you have the, the aluminum and the mercury. You have the metals in there, the mercury still in multi-dose vials of, uh, let's say, flu vaccine, for example. Um, but the uh, aluminum in most vaccines as an adjuvant. So those two things, they're neurotoxic. They're neurodevelopmental toxins. Just knowing that puts them in the spotlight as something that actually needs to be actively studied to uh, see what uh, is the contribution of that to neurodevelopment and neurodevelopmental disorders. The other factor besides the mercury and aluminum, which is strong enough issue, and you can certainly make a strong case for those two, is the uh, immune response itself. That is to say, uh, when you stimulate uh, with a, a, an antigen that is in a vaccine, when you stimulate with a vaccine, and we can think about one vaccine, oh, you're activating these inflammatory systems, inflammatory cytokines, as they're called, float around the body, and they increase inflammation, and then you recover. You had an exposure from the vaccine, but if life goes on the way it should, you recover and you're back to normal. Okay, good. 
Oh, here comes the next vaccine. Oh, will you come all the way back down to normal again after the next one? How about the one after that? How about two or three in a day? Mm -hmm. So at some point, the ability to restore normal in terms of having a non-inflammatory state becomes more difficult. Re complete restoration after an inflammatory insult is not guaranteed. And it requires glutathione and antioxidants to do that. And there's been a number of studies, and I couldn't point them out, uh, not that many because it hasn't been studied as well as it should be, but the, the studies that have been done shown that, that after uh, vaccination, the uh, pathways that um, lead to methylation on the one hand uh, are suppressed and you have impaired methylation from the vaccination as a result of that. Mm -hmm. And the pathways that lead toward making more glutathione, those are increased because the body needs more glutathione to quench the inflammation. Uh, so with these kind of facts or these kind of uh, science that's already out there, the possibility is that the inflammatory response itself is a source of risk and so are the effects of the toxic metals, uh, which are difficult to excrete, that are a part of the vaccine uh, formulation. So there's plenty to look at. And the main thing is that the attitude uh, of the general uh, medical field is that there couldn't be anything possibly to be concerned about with vaccines or vaccination, no matter how often or or when you give them and so forth. And that's just a foolish, foolish, short-sighted um, perspective. It's a drug. It's, it's something that, that causes important effects in the body. Of course there's a, a consequence of that. It's just a question of being clear about what are the consequences of vaccination and who are the at-risk populations that will, uh, that will be most vulnerable to those consequences. Right, to inject known neurotoxins like aluminum and mercury into your system along with all of the other uh, things like formaldehyde and tick embryo and other things, body, you know, it doesn't know what to do with all of those things and, uh, and the reactions. And, and, you know, maybe when I was a child, it was six or eight vaccinations. Today, it's like 40 or 50 by the time you get to kindergarten. I think that it's number actually above 60. It's ridiculous what they're what they're doing as far as the extent of the vaccinations. Um, I have I vaccinations. By the way, I want to be clear here too that I always say I'm not anti-vaccine, and I'm not. But I think vaccines can be made safer, and they can be made more effective as well. Yeah. This past flu season. It's just the, uh, the proof that there's a, a big opportunity to make vaccines work better. If you're going to suffer these things, you may as well get the full benefit of them. But uh, making them safer can also be done. For example, if we knew that, oh, methylation is impaired after vaccination, then why wouldn't we uh, try to help restore methylation? to normal um, after a vaccination. I mean, that's something that we're giving a lot of thought to and uh, I think uh, makes sense. Um, so I'm not anti-vaccine, 
but I, I think we can learn a lot about how to make them both safer and more effective than they are right now. Right. And I, I did interview um, Dr. Uh, Sherry Tenpenny on vaccinations. Um, and, I'll, and there's a lot of great information for parents there because I know they're listening to this and wanting to know more. So I'll link to that as well uh, on this page at naturallyrecoveringautism.com where this podcast is released. Uh, and so you can listen to that as well for more information because the key really with anything is just to be educated about what you're doing so that any decision that you make for yourself, for your child, is an educated one and you know what the possibilities are and what you're wanting to do um, without somebody just telling you how it is you can look further and find more information and just become educated about it so that your decisions are in educated ones mm -hmm. that's why the confidence of your own knowledge rather than simply uh passive passively following a, a protocol that somebody else knows about but you don't Mm -hmm. uh, that confidence alone is uh, is helpful for uh, feeling uh, that you've done the right thing. Absolutely. Do you have anything else to add before we wrap up, Dr. Deeth? Uh, this has, I'm sure, been very, very helpful to a lot of parents. And um, and I'll also, there's a really great um, liposomal glutathione um, sublingual product that I, I know of as well that I'll link to because that again has been very helpful for a lot of parents. I have a whole step-by-step -step program and people can learn about that on my website to walk through it because there's a lot of confusion. It's like, well, when do I give B12 and how do I find methyl B12? And, and again, using the sublingual liposomal form and what that means so it absorbs properly and there's just and in the order you want to do it in and how much to give and when so that's what i've created is an online program so if people are interested in that you can go to my website naturallyrecoveringautism.com um but um yeah anything that you know any additional education that you have when you're caring for your child and um, helping to get them better uh to, to get the optimum results is absolutely key and keep them as healthy as they can be so they can be happy children who are who grow up to live fulfilled lives um, is there anything else that you have to add before we before we finish then uh, I've been thinking about it I think uh, we covered uh, quite a bit of ground actually I, so my, my final word is epigenetics <laughs> is that uh, I think uh, people could uh, do worse than to learn what that means and to think about how that uh, plays out in terms of their kids' development and their uh, uh, importance of having a natural diet and having avoiding toxins and things like that, it's um, it's important. And right. uh, hopefully, people remember epigenetics. And so many of the things that we've talked about, I've actually interviewed somebody. So once again, I'm just going to mention for parents who want to learn more details, Dr. Bruce Lipton is one of the well-known uh, doctors out there for uh, epigenetics and knowledge in it. And I did also do an interview with him as well, of all these okay. wonderful people who have shared their time with us so that um, parents are educated. And I'm, I'm trying to help do that. And so um, that's where these interviews are really, really helpful with all of you experts. So again, Dr. Deeth, I know that your time is valuable and how well-resourced and educated you are. So thank you again for sharing with us and our audience um, to help our kids stay better and get better. And my compliments to you for your involvement in, the, in this important task. So thanks yeah. again, Karen. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have take you. care. Bye-bye now.